Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My name is Gary Lewin. I'm a charter physiotherapist that's worked in sports medicine, predominantly football, all my career, um, spanning the last 30 odd years. Gary, I think people who, who support a football team or watch football are used to seeing a physio running on a pitch, trying to treat an injury or helping out a, um, a player before doing that thing with their hands to say that they've got mm. to come off. Um, but could you give us a some sort of information about what a physio's job at the top level of football looks like day to day. Yeah, I mean, I always regarded as match day as my day off, really, because right. that was probably the easiest day of the week where you're watching a game of football and you might have to treat one or two injuries. Hopefully, not many. Yeah, um, but it really was the the tip of the iceberg. Um, so, a physiotherapist's role is really to look after um, all soft tissue injuries, um, rehabilitation, player welfare. Um, on a day-to-day basis. So in a in a normal pro club, you're always dictated to buy match days. Mm. So in a normal week, you'd probably have three matches. If I use Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday as a normal scenario. So you'd play the game on the Saturday and you'd cover the game. Um, Sunday, the lads would probably be in for a recovery day. So you'd be overseeing the recovery with all the other multidisciplinary team members, such as the masseurs, sports scientists, fitness coaches, the docs. Um, and the other physios. Um, then on the Monday, again, normal training session, the injured players will be in, so you'll be doing their rehabilitation. You'll be doing any maintenance work with the players that are training and playing the following day. 
chances are you'd probably travel that night because the, the second game would be an away game. Mm. Then you're with the team whilst they're away, travelling, again, cover the game. Chances are the team would probably be off on the Wednesday, but your injured players would be in, so you'd, you'd probably come in with the other medical team members and treat those players. And then Thursday, Friday, normal training days. Mm. Um, again, players that are injured are having their treatment, their rehab mornings and afternoons. The players that are training, you would do pre-training maintenance work, post-training maintenance work. And then again, with the game on the Saturday, you'd probably be train, um, traveling and staying overnight in a hotel. So again, you'd travel with the team and cover the game on the Saturday. Yeah, so you're obviously a really key part of the, of the team and, and it's a busy time. And I imagine the bigger clubs, you've probably got a team around you as mm. well because you're obviously a senior guy, so you've yeah. had the team. Yeah, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. So I've been <laughs> in the game since the 80s when I worked on my own. Um how much has it changed over the years? It oh, must be unimaginable. Dramatic. It's dramatic. Yeah. I mean, I use a scenario when when I when when we won the league in '89 at Arsenal at Anfield. Um, George Graham was the manager. Theo Foley was the assistant manager. I was the physiotherapist, and Tony Donnelly was our kit man. We were the only full-time staff for the first team. Right. All the others were part-time. Um, when I left Arsenal in 2008, um, there were at least. 12 full-time staff members that work with the team. Um, currently, um, there I've been told there are 19 or 20 staff members that travel with the team. And a lot of clubs now have two coaches. They have a team bus and they have a staff bus. Right. So it, it, is, it has changed dramatically, but the demands have changed um, dramatically as well on what's expected to support the players and support the the teams nowadays. Do you ever look back at some of the practices that were de rigueur in the 80s and mm. think, God, I can't believe we used to do that? Yeah, I mean, that's medicine in general. I mean, yeah. if, if you, in the 80s when I when I first started practicing, um, the only imaging we could do was an x-ray. Yeah. They did do some isotope bone scanning, but that was very rare. Whereas nowadays you've got um, ultrasound scans, CT scans, MRI scans, as well as x-rays. Mm. Um, you've got three-dimensional functional movement screen scanners. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 uh, in line with the science and the support science, the, your your ways of working and your protocols have changed dramatically. And um, what, what in particular, I mean, is it, is it something now that you focus more on perhaps prevention rather than treatment or you, you know that if you take players through their personal plans because they're all personalised now yeah, right yeah. you know that you are going to vastly limit the injuries they may sustain it's a combination of all of the above right. um, so what you do now is pre-season you screen all your players You're, you already know their previous medical history but now yeah. you do a functional screen of them um, that includes things like cardiac screening as well as uh, sure. muscle screening as well as joint screening and power. Um, and so you screen your players. So you will develop an individualised program with the rest of your multidisciplinary team, which involves your sports, um, your strength and conditioning coaches, your sports scientists, your physios, the masseurs, the docs, mm. nutritionists are involved, podiatrists are involved. Mm. So you then create an individual program to support that athlete, that player, to make them the best they can be. In accordance with that or in line with that, you're also then um, working with players um, to prevent injury. So the biggest factor or predisposing factor to injury is previous injury. Yeah. So if a player has a lot or, or a, a lot of significant previous um, injuries, 
you put in, some people call it a prehabilitation program, mm. um, but a program to work on preventing their previous injuries reoccurring um, as well as developing them as, as athletes to make them stronger, to make them fitter, to make them quicker. Mm. So all that comes into play. Alongside that, it is a contact sport, so they are going to pick up other injuries. Mm. So again, you're treating those injuries in the acute stage, the subacute stage, and then the return to play stage. Mm. Um, so it goes from the minute they come off the pitch, you're doing soft tissue treatment, to the minute they start rehabilitating, to the minute they go onto the pitch for the first time, and then they return to the squad and return to play. And that's part of the multidisciplinary team's approach of the pathway to return to play. When you say acute and subacute, does that mean acute is when it's first happened and then... Yeah, I mean, in medical terms, we, we regard the, the the acute stage as the first 48, 72 hours. Right. That's why you're often here managers saying, we won't know the extent of the injury. Until the swelling's gone days, down. The swelling's gone down. Yeah, and, yeah, okay. And, and that's what they're referring to. The subacute stage is when, um, just after that acute stage, where uh, the swelling should have stopped... Um, the healing process would have started. And then that's where the treatment is so important because the healing process, what we do as a multidisciplinary team is we make the environment for healing ideal. Mm. There's no magic cure of increasing healing rates. Mm. Every person is different. Mm. But if we make the environment for their recovery and their healing ideal, they will recover the quickest possible way that their body will allow them to recover. Mm. So that's the subacute stage. Then once you get into the uh, the chronic stage, that's when you're in the return to play stage. The healing has occurred. You're rehabilitating the body. You're getting the strength back. You're getting the power back. You're getting the full range of movement back. But most importantly, you're getting the function back to be able to perform the sport that you want to perform in. But also you're getting the function in a contact sport. Mm. So even though they're on the pitches and they might be doing their final stage rehab, you have to expose them to the contact part of it and that's when they first join in the training. And over your time as, as doing this this job, you because the game has changed so much, I presume you've started to see a, a change in the profile of the types of injuries that players get. Yeah, I mean, the, the they're much more athletic now. Uh, I mean, it's it's... It's factual that the game has got quicker, it's mm. got faster, they're more athletic now. Um, so in accordance with that, the, the, the types of injuries they get will change. Um, the laws of the game have changed quite dramatically over the years. So the laws are there to try and protect players from a, a lot of contact, cyn um, cynical tackles. Because the impact's faster and harder because they're exactly. stronger athletes. No, exactly. Um, but they're finely tuned athletes now. So mm. the minor injuries become quite uh, become more apparent. Um, and there's so many other variables that come into play. The squads are bigger. I mean, mm. when we won the league in 89, I think we used 15 players that year. Mm. You're talking of squads of 25, 26 regular first-team players in a squad. And you hear the word rotation a lot. Mm. Um, again, this comes down to the fact of the number of staff you've got, analysing the players, looking after the players, and trying to manage their match minutes that's not detrimental to the team, but is protective to the player. Mm. So again, these factors come into play, the number of games they play. Um, so it, 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 has it has changed dramatically. When I first started in football, the manager would only change the team after a disastrous result yeah. or somebody got injured. Okay. If not, 
everyone played. I mean, it I, used I, to be the old adage: you don't change your winning team. No, but, yeah. I, I remember. I remember when I first started, they used to play Boxing Day and the twenty seventh, right, and the first and second of January. Yeah, so you'd play two games in two days. And I remember one game. Uh, I think we played um, Leicester away on Boxing Day in Ipswich at home on the twenty seventh, and both teams played the same teams on both days. And then wow. um, the Ipswich team, they picked up three hamstring injuries. They In those days, only one sub. Yeah. So they actually finished up with, although 11 players were on the pitch, only nine players could move. Right. And that's what you did. But it was a level playing field. Yeah. Everyone was doing the same thing. They were all playing on the same days. They were all eating the same food. They were mm. all training the same way. So it was a level player field. Now that has changed dramatically. You don't know what day you're going to play. You don't know where you're going to play. Well, you know where, but the travel arrangements, yeah. the the competition you're in, yeah. um, the you could you could play three games in six days the way it stands at the moment, but you could be playing someone that hasn't played for ten days. Mm. So it's not a level playing field anymore. So what, when you say that the athletes are more finely tuned, tell us a bit about what you mean by that. Well, with power and strength comes speed. Mm. Um, and it's a bit like driving a car. The, the quicker you go when you have an accident, mm. the worse the consequences. And right. it's no different with with athletes or sports people in a contact sport. Rugby's experiencing the same sort of pressures. The game's getting a lot quicker. They're getting much fitter. Um, and the speed of the game has increased dramatically. Um, so they are more finely tuned to a degree where if something's not quite working right, it will affect their performance. Mm. But again, with the, the number of players you have, the squads you have, it allows a manager just to tweak the team to allow a player that's got a small problem to get over it and recover for the next game. Whereas if they played on it, it would make it worse. Mm. So in the in the older days when players would keep playing until they got injured, they would often play with minor muscle injuries and eventually it would turn into a, a significant muscle injury. They would come out of the team, next man would go in, when they were fit, they would come back. Whereas now mm. that's changed. So when you see an older pundit, a pundit of the older generation on, on the TV saying, oh, you know, that kid's 20 years old and he should want to play every game and yeah. I don't buy the fact that he, he's tired. Yeah. You, you're, you've you got your head in your hands at that point, have you? Yeah, yeah, to a degree. Because as I said, from those days, it was a level playing field. It was everyone was doing the same thing. It wasn't um, as intense either, right? Well, because you don't see players of the profile that you used to see back in the seventies or the eighties. No. Maybe some would be fit and some wouldn't no. be as fit, but it wouldn't matter. What, what I would say it was more of the survival of the fittest, and it was almost uh, um, a sport of attrition. So the fitter, the stronger players mm. who could um, be more tolerant or more robust would play to that level. Mm. Um, but the level was the same for all teams. Um, what I would say now is because they're much more athletic, the game's a lot quicker, um, it means there is a significant difference. And you can't compare the two because mm. the game, the pitches have changed dramatically. The speed of movement of ball, the transition has changed dramatically. Mm. The speed of the players, the distance they run, the speed that they run at, it's, it's all increased quite dramatically. So it, you can't compare the two. Do you um, have any fear that... So, I mean, in American sports, for example, take NFL, they don't play till they're, they don't play in the NFL till they're sort of early, mid-twenties or whatever. Yeah. Do you have any fear that um, these young kids who come through, may they break into the first team at 17 or whatever, from a medical standpoint, they're still growing and developing. Is it something that's in the forefront of your mind when you deal with a player of that age because you think, we've got to be careful here? 
that's quite an, that's a very interesting question because subjectively I've said for years I have a concern of the number of England players that have broken into the England squad at a very early age mm. and what their injury record was like. Mm. And the obvious ones spring to mind um spring to mind um of people like Michael Owen. Yeah. Um Stephen Gerrard, uh, um not so much John Terry because his injury record was very good. Yeah. Um and 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 again the question has to be asked Theo Walcott um um Alex Chamberlain mm. um Jack Wilkshire mm. um that it's a subjective view because there's probably no statistics behind it but these were not completely developed immature skeletons mm. competing at a very very high level of sport mm. and what effect does that have on their bodies longer term um and i think that's something that obviously um, some research w- would be useful to do. I think the statistics of players that have broken into the England squad um, could show a trend. I mean, Jonathan Woodgate's another one that springs to mind mm. that broke into the England squad when he was 18. Mm. Um, so, um, as I said, it's a subjective answer I'm giving you. It's mm. not an objective, it's not full of data, mm. but it's definitely food, food for thought that would be quite an interesting debate mm. with with figures, with numbers. Mm. And do you ever come to the conclusion as a, as a kind of medical professional that you've you've worked with a player who's had a lot of injury problems over a long time? Say Jonathan Woodgate, I mean, I'm not picking him for any particular reason, but we, his, his injury problems were well documented. Do you ever find yourself of the professional opinion that some bodies just aren't cut out for top-level sports? They may have all the talent and the brain for it, but their bodies can't sustain and put up with the pressures. Yes, I think that's. I'll say that's true, but again, it's a subjective opinion, right? Um, and the issue that you have is, I go back to what I said very much the early part of the interview. Mm. The biggest factor for injury are, or the the, the biggest predisposing factor mm. of instance of injury is previous injury. Yeah. So these players are getting exposed to high level sport at a very young age. Mm. If they pick up an injury early in their career, that is a predisposing factor for further injury. Mm. So straight away, it reinforces the comment I made earlier in the interview. Mm. So, yes, I think it does expose them to it. Now, some players can tolerate it and their bodies can tolerate it and um, others can't. Again, there's so many variables involved, the position they play the number of games they've played at an early age. Because a John Terry and a Michael Owen, you wouldn't compare because John Terry's never been about explosive pace exactly. and they're, Michael Owen's all about that. So They're completely different athletes. Mm. So it, it, it's very difficult to to compare that objectively because they are different people um, and different uh, metabolisms, different um, mechanics involved in, mm. in not only their position but their actual bodies and the frames. So it... it, it it would be an interesting debate to have um, with some more um, objective markers. Put What's in. your personal opinion on Gary? My personal opinion is that we do expose the players very young to it and I think it is a predisposing factor to long-term injury. Mm, okay. um, but again, that's a subjective opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And and different players presumably are have a different attitude towards whether they want to play with a slight niggle or whether they want to be 100% fit. We've seen um, very illustrious players who've had several international caps say that, oh, you know, well, I can't remember the last time I was in quotes fully fit. You know, I always go and play. I'll, I'll have a painkiller here or I'll push myself through it there. That must be quite a fine balancing act for 
a member of a physiotherapist mm. under pressures from all over the place, not just from the club, the manager, the player themselves, about making the right professional decision for, for that player yeah. at that time. Yeah. And I think that's where experience plays a major part of that, of knowing what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. <clears throat> Excuse me. As in, in the medical world, we have um, certain... Um, protocols, um, certain objective markers where we would declare a player unfit because they haven't hit certain markers. Mm. But a majority of injuries are in that grey area mm. where, I mean, I, I I remember telling George Graham in 1989 when Mickey Thomas had a knee injury the week before we played Liverpool at Anfield, uh, he's fit to start, but I'm not sure he'll finish. Right. And he scores the winning goal in the 93rd right. minute. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. It just shows how little I knew. Um but it just sort of highlights the dilemma you have. And this is where the multidisciplinary team and the relationship they have with the player and the management is actual crucial crucial to the, the welfare of the players mm. in that it is a consensus. So a player knows if they are able to play. Medically, you know whether it's a risk if they played. The manager understands this but has the risk element of the game. Again, it was well documented. I remember um, Arsene Wenger playing Cesc Fabregas in the game for Arsenal. I think it was against Aston Villa and uh, he admitted afterwards, I was advised not to play him. He wanted to play. It was a gamble that was worth taking. He scored the winning goal, set up the other goal. Mm. They won 2-0, but he had a reoccurring hamstring injury and he, he then missed another three weeks. Mm. So that just illustrates how how difficult it is and it's not a black and white decision it's not they are fit they're not mm. fit the obvious ones are obvious if they've got a significant injury mm. they just simply aren't fit mm. but it's it's the not so significant ones that are the difficult ones how, but Gary how do you approach that morally though if you've got a young man there whose future's ahead of him mm. and you're getting pressure I'm not suggesting personally you've been in this position I mean I don't know but at least hypothetically maybe you'd be able to answer it the question which is that a manager's got a FA Cup final, a Champions League final, yeah. whatever it may be, and he needs that player. And he knows, because he's been in the game a long time himself, yeah. if you bang him a painkiller and injection, he's going to be able to play. But long term, that's going to damage the player. How do you how do you solve that kind of quite tricky issue as a, as a, as a medical professional? You be honest. Yeah. And you tell them the consequences of the actions. Does the buck stop um, with you or does it stop with the coach? Well, again, it depends on the situation. I mean, for... To answer that question, probably the best illustration at the moment is the concussion guidelines. Yeah. That is quite black and white. If a medical uh, person regards somebody as being concussed, they come off, they're substituted, end of story. Mm. I wish it was that easy. Right. Because the signs of concussion are so varied. They can be delayed, can't they? Yeah. Exactly. Because You could not have uh, symptoms of a concussion on the pitch. Two minutes later, you've got symptoms of a concussion, by which time the game would have started again. We saw this happen with Jan Vertonghen for Spurs yeah, last yeah, season. Yeah. And, yeah, and again, this is where, I mean, I've campaigned for a couple of years where we need concussion substitutions as they have in rugby. I completely understand the laws of the game in football are different, but for me, that's not a reason not to do it now. Hmm. Um, but it does illustrate the point you're trying to make in that it's a very grey area. Hmm. Um, and where do you stand? What I would say is, as a medical practitioner, whether it's the doctor being a member of the GMC or a physiotherapist that's a member of the HCPC, mm. we are governed by an external body. Our decision-making um, is governed by them. So we have to adhere to our codes of conduct, our mm. codes of practice. 
We have a duty of care to the player. So whatever happens, we have to inform the player and the management the consequences of if they played with this injury, this would happen. Our advice would be that they do not play. That gets documented mm-hmm. and that gets put across. Mm. If you get overruled by the player and the manager, in concussion that should never happen because the rules state that you have the final say. But in things like muscle injuries or joint injuries, where it's not a case where you're going to do long-term damage to them, but you might do short-term damage to Mm -hmm. them, you have to state what could go wrong and make it clear to everyone and document it. That way you're covering yourself that you've done everything in the correct fashion. Mm. In practice, I've got to say that very rarely happens nowadays Mm. because the players are aware of their own bodies. They're aware of what they can or can't do. The managers are also very aware that if a player is not quite right and is not going to perform to the best of his ability, the manager probably wouldn't want him to play anyway. Yeah. Because with the squads they've got, Mm. they've got another player that can fulfil that role Mm. that's not detrimental to the team. So... I would say it doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, the medical person has to be very specific and methodical in the way that he relays information to the player and the manager and documents it. And presumably you guys will work better when you're working in, in unison as a team anyway, right? It's the only way to work. Yeah. If, if, if that team relationship breaks down, it, it's, very, it's, it's often irreparable and that's when changes get made. Mm. And we talked a bit about the prevention of injury and the preparation and how the players look after themselves. Of course, there are incidents that happen during any sport or any kind of thing where there's any kind of jeopardy involved at all, where you have these horrific and you know, unforeseen impact injuries. Of course, infamously, um, you were on the scene when Arsenal's Eduardo mm. broke his leg badly against Birmingham City, and and I think you were, I think Eduardo himself said that you were the guy that essentially helped save his foot. It was that bad an injury. I mean, tell us a bit. We don't want to be too morbid about it, of course. But it's not. This is not grief tourism. But no. tell tell us a bit about, if you can, what it's like to be first on the scene in that kind of injury. An Andre Gomez, if you like, hey, and yeah. um, an Aaron Ramsey. What is it? Just your training kicks in there and then, yeah. and you're you've got to be very good under pressure. But it must be horrific because you know these guys personally. You're friends with them a lot of the time. Very very difficult situation. When it happens at first your training kicks in yeah, um, and that's what we train for. Um, the FA um, now in the Premier League run advanced trauma courses that you all have to be qualified in. I actually teach on them now for the FA, um, but you have to have your ATMIF qualification to be allowed to go on the pitch to do this. Right. And that training is how you deal with life-threatening and limb-threatening injuries mm. such as that. Mm. So your training kicks in. It's probably afterwards on reflection that it hits you, mm. that what you've done, who it was. Because you're an what, autopilot at that point. At that time, you're, and, you, and we have a thing called an emergency action plan. That yeah. Everybody knows what it is. So when you get a significant injury like that, everyone knows what the protocols are. And you do get that set in stone. Um, so that's where your training kicks in. Mm. The experience helps because um, the more you've had to deal with these situations, the more um, you're used to dealing with them. But that's... When you arrive, you're doing the you're doing in your head. You're going through your methodical A B C D E, so airways, mm. breathing, cardiac. Mm. You're going through everything, mm-hmm. and you're doing it in a set order, so you know that you're doing the right things. 
And I mean, there's a, there were, I mean, because I think Eduardo in that case was out of football for a year, which yeah. given the state of the injury he had is actually quite miraculous. I mean, we're talking 30 years before. I mean, yeah. that's, yeah. that's the end of his career, essentially. That was a career-threatening injury, yeah. Yeah, and, and we, we could possibly get into a debate about whether he was able to carry on properly yeah. at the top level since then, yes. because the, obviously, but how how does that affect the rest of the team and the squad? Because I, I think one thing that's underplayed about these kind of injuries, and we saw it with Aaron Ramsey as well, is the psychological effect it can have on a player and the players around them as well. Um, is enough done currently for that to be taken into account as well, do you think? Um, that's a, yeah, it's a difficult question to answer that. I mean, if I go back to Eduardo's, if I remember rightly, I think we were 11 points clear at that stage of the season and we ended up coming second in the league. Right. So I don't think you can underestimate the the effect that injury had on not only losing a player of Eduardo's quality, but the psychological effect it had on the rest of the team. Mm. Um, so that does come, that does come into it. Um, but I mean, the, the player welfare, whether it be mental health, whether it be general welfare of the player is something that's coming much more to the forefront in, in the, the care of players in general. Mm. And rightly so. I think the, the, the mental health issues that are going through sport in general now that are open to be being discussed can only be good for the game. And, with with a with a, a bad leg break, am I right in saying that the bone itself will knit together fairly quickly, fairly swiftly, but it's the tendons and the ligaments and all the stuff around it which takes well, longer to heal? Yeah, well, it depends on what damage is done. I mean, so again, coming back to, again, something I said earlier on about how we make the environment for healing ideal, hmm. there's no different to a muscle injury or to that kind of injury. So with that significant trauma to a limb, the first thing you do is get the integrity of the bones you then get the integrity of the soft tissues, so the vascular tissues, the the nerve tissue, the muscles, the tendons. And so they all have to heal in their own way, in their own time. And so, it, so it's all part of the whole um, healing process. But what we have to do as medical staff is make that environment for healing ideal. It starts with surgery. Yeah. So the surgery is the key to get everything put back in place where it should be. Will they be in surgery... In a couple of hours. Uh, he, I, I think Eduardo had surgery within the hour. Right. Um, so this is where the emergency action plan kicks yeah, in. Yeah. At Birmingham, they were fantastic. They had an ambulance. He was um, on the stretcher, immobilised in the ambulance, I think, within eight minutes. Right. He was at the local hospital within another 10 minutes. Um, he'd been seen by a surgeon within the, within the hour and down in theatre within the hour. Wow. And uh, this is what I mean by at the professional level, you have an emergency action plans put in place. Mm. So this is all routine. Whether you're home or away, you all know the EAP for the away ground. Mm. And if teams are coming to you, the away team will know what your EAP is. So mm. that's where the game has changed a lot as well. It's mm. so there's, there's so much more professionalism and sharing of information amongst teams. And how, how quickly after that injury of that type will Eduardo or whoever it is be expected to report back into the training ground? I mean, you, surely well, you've got to do some kind of outreach to keep him as part of the squad and yeah. make sure you're looking after him. But realistically, there's no point in coming into work, is there? It, well, yes and no. Um, this is where the it's a combination of everything. So the mm. initial phase, the acute stage, yeah. is you're allowing the, um, the, the fracture to heal and the wounds to heal. So... He would have been put in plaster, if I remember rightly, he was in plaster for two weeks while the wounds were healing and the bones were starting to, to heal. And, and and the metal work had been put in place to, to enable that to happen. He then come out of the cast. Um, nowadays, we put them into these big grey air cast boots that yeah. you see. Now, once that happens, um, you can do things like um, gym work, rehab work, 
just to get physiologically get their bodies going again to get the blood flowing around the body without actually loading the injured limb. Gary, what's the benefit from having an air cast as opposed to the old casts we used to see? Um, the good thing about the air cast is you can take it off and you can do soft tissue work. Okay. So you can start mobilising the joints, you can start massaging and um, doing soft tissue mobilisations to the muscles, the tendons. So no so, one will use plaster cast off? No, no, you sometimes, no, you sometimes do. It okay. depends on the surgeon's protocol okay. and it depends on the injury. Okay. Um, but the, the what is encouraged now is to get them out of the immobility as quickly as you can. So you see a lot more knee braces now. You see a lot more air cast boots because mm. um, mobilisation is the key to get them going. Mm. The other side of that is the mental side of it. So you have to think about, although you want to incorporate it into the team, sometimes mentally that can make them very depressed because they can't perform, they can't train, but they're amongst the team every day. So sometimes you see that the players might be sent away. Eduardo, we sent him back to Brazil. We had a fantastic relationship with the national team. They had their centre of excellence in Brazil, uh, in Rio. So Eduardo went back there and spent some time there. Uh, the doc flew out with him to do the handover. Mm-hmm. We were talking to them on a weekly basis, getting videos of what he was doing. Then he would come back to us for three or four weeks, do some more work with us. Then he went back there. So each player is different and each um, rehabilitation plan will be different depending on the player's well-being, whether it's a case of you want them in the club or they actually want some time away. You often do a deloading week where you allow them to go on holiday for a week, even though they've got a long-term injury. Actually, it's best you load them, you load them, you let the body recover for a week so they go away and have a week's holiday somewhere. So it's everything is well marshaled, everything is well documented and planned over the um, dependent on the length of the injury. And you must have seen players who, because these are, these are guys, a lot of the time they're kids, certainly young men, and they're they're born to be professional athletes and they're kind of judged in every aspect of their life about how they can perform as a professional athlete. And all of a sudden, if they get a long-term injury, you take that away from them. Presumably, it can affect certain players very diff- in a very difficult way psychologically. They can almost have a, a personality change because they can't do what they want to do. Oh, no, exactly. It's, it's, I mean, they're, they're doing a sport that they're addicted to yeah. and they've got a passion for. Then that suddenly goes away. Then... Doubts will creep in their mind. Will I ever get back? Will I ever be the player I was? Will I ever be the person I was? Mm. Um, they're still human beings. They've got relationships. They've got mm. private lives. They've got pressure from families. Um, all this comes into the, the overall well-being of the player. And mm. this is what becomes part of the plan of returning to play. Um, and at different moments of that pathway, they will need different support, whether it be psychological support, whether it needs a break from the team, whether it needs pushing to push them harder, whether it means easing off a little bit. Um, and that is continually reassessed by the multidisciplinary team. And that aspect is something that's presumably improved over the years because I've had uh, ex-players in here who said, I had to cut my short, uh, my career short for injury. And to be honest, I felt like a piece of meat being yeah. told, see you later. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that clubs are aware of now. Oh yeah, the the, the 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 player welfare aspect of it has improved dramatically, um, and the players' responsibilities and the club's responsibilities, um, and awareness of those responsibilities have changed a lot. And um, so the 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 uh, and again the environment the players are in with their agents, their support mm. teams, um, again that that has changed a lot. Um, in the last 15, 20 years, dramatically so. So the support things in place are greater. Mm. Um, and so you won't hear 
as I would like, don't think you'd like you hear as much nowadays as things you've heard in the past where I got injured and that's when you find out your mates are yeah, not, yeah, and I haven't yeah. got any. Yeah, okay, and, yeah. Um, and I think that's changed. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever had to tell a player that his career is over? Yes. Um, never nice thing to do, um, but you have to be honest with them. You... Players aren't daft. Yeah. They they feel when things aren't going well mm. and you build a relationship with them um, that becomes very personal. So you would rather be the one that breaks that to them because mm. you've been working with them closely. And um, it has happened to me on, I've, I wouldn't say a lot of occasions, but uh, several occasions where you've had to sit down and break to a player. The ones I find hardest personally are the younger players mm. who haven't had a career in football. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The ones who've had a career, at least they've had a career. Yeah. And although it's never nice, they've had a career and they've experienced professional football. But with the younger players who pick up an, an injury very early on their career and they never recover from it, I find those the hardest ones to have the discussion with because they look at you and say, well, okay, well, what am I going to do now? Yeah. Football's my life. Mm. So... Um, not 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 easy decisions to make and not easy discussions to have. But the world of medicine has, has improved so much over the last few generations. I'm just trying to think of what kind of injury would stop a young lad playing. Would it be mostly knee-related or...? Cause, I would say joint-related. Joint, related. joint um, okay. I, w- I would say if it's a mechanical injury, as in a ligament rupture or a tendon rupture, with surgery the way it is nowadays most of the time they will make a full recovery um, mm. from those kind of surgeries. The ones that become more pragmatic are the ones that involve the bone and the articular surface of a joint. Right. That's where it's all to do with the load going through the body. Mm. And it is a contact sport with a heavy load. 
and you can't move away from that. And if they sustain an injury to a joint and that joint is then moving forward, unable to manage the load of the sport, that joint will keep breaking down. And that's when you have to have the conversation with the player to say, if you keep going the way you are in 10 years' time, that joint will be completely degenerative mm. and it will affect your quality of life. Mm. So without the decision of making, can you get to the level you want to get to now mm. or can you stay at the level you're at now, it's also a discussion about what's going to, your body going to be like in 10 or 15 years' time. Mm. So again, it comes down to the well-being of the player. But I would say it's more joint-related. And we hear of people having hip replacement or knee replacement or whatever. I mean, I'm a bit ignorant of, of the technology and how it works, but I mean, am I right in saying that if you have a knee replacement, that's just a knee replacement so you can walk? It's not ever going to be able to bear the load of being a professional footballer. So it's not, it's not an option just to get a brand new knee in there. No, I mean, it, it, again, most joint replacements are done more in, in older people yeah. anyway. And so you're not expecting them to put the load through their body that... Um, that the, would happen if they were playing professional sport. Hmm. So most joint replacements are done for a quality of life and pain control. Hmm. And okay. they're, they're not two things that are related to sport. No. Okay, so it's not an option. And I noticed earlier when we when we talked about a bit about concussion, that's something that you were quite passionate about. Is it, is it something that you think is the big talking point in sport in, in 2019? Well, I think it's one of the big talking points in sport for medicine. And the, the thing that I'm passionate about is protecting medical staff. Mm. And I don't think the medical staff, when you go on a field of play, have the protection from the laws of the game at the moment. Right. Uh, and that's why I'm a big advocate for a concussion substitute. Mm. I understand the laws of football make it very difficult and it can be abused. So if you're losing 1-0 in the 85th minute and you've got, you've got use all your subs um you could your center half could suddenly suffer a concussion and the sub you put on is a center forward mm. um i understand that mm. but i'm talking on the welfare of the player and supporting the medical staff that are put under incredible pressure to make a decision mm. and also i think we're beginning now to realize how serious a condition um concussion is or the effects of a concussion are longer term on a body mm. um so that's why I, i'm i'm passionate about it in that i want to protect the players but as importantly i want to protect the medical staff because i all i once got taught a phrase by a, a doctor that i worked with and he said if you and me make a mistake we're going to drive a cab in camden because we're going to get struck off mm. if a manager or a sports scientist makes a mistake they go and get another job. Mm. And that can't be right. And that's the pressure you're put yeah. under. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that we need a bit more protection. And mm. that's one way. But you never, you're never going to make it 100% foolproof. Mm. But if the medical staff are allowed time to do a proper assessment and by taking the pressure off the management of the team by allowing a player to go on to make it 11 versus 11, mm. that medical staff member can do their job. Mm. At the moment, with the pressures put on them, that's not always the case. Do you feel, I mean, one of the sports that's been in the vanguard of this around head injuries is, of course, NFL, mm. but do you look at that as a medical professional and go, that's crazy they're even doing that because the impact on their brains and their heads is, is just, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't happen? Well, I still think... That, 
there, there's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. Uh, and we're using the NFL as our 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 catalyst to get this going in our sport, which I think is a good thing. Mm. But I don't think you can compare the two. Mm. Um, there's so many more head injuries. I mean, NFL, every tackle's a car crash, isn't it? Mm. Um, what do you think about that personally as a, as a, as a, as a physiotherapist, though? In, in that they're doing it in NFL, they're doing that. Yeah, you um, must have an opinion on it. On that, they're the, allowing, you just said every tackle's a car, car crash. crash. I mean, is that is that right? Should that be happening? Well, you could have the argument about boxing, yeah, uh, or oh, if they want to or, do it, or, they're entitled or, to do or, it, or, or Formula One, yeah. Um, yeah. so it's it's what we've have to do is if the sport is set up in a way from a medical profession, we have to make it the safest that we can possibly make it. Mm. You're never ever going to take away. All elements of risk, hmm. but what we have to do is make it as safe as possible. So in Formula One, they've done so much work on on safety. The NFL, they're now doing a lot of work on the helmets, the rules, hmm. and the concussions. Um, in football, we've done it with the change of the laws, so the the the, the tackle from behind, the two footed hmm. tackle, um, the reckless tackles, hmm. the use of the elbow. So yes, I think all the sports are moving forward to protect it. But they're all protections in place for things that you can see. Mm. The problem with concussion, you can't. Mm. But I think to support the medical teams, we need to change the laws to allow them to do their job. Mm. Yeah, I'm just putting in mind of that documentary, I'm not sure if you saw it, that Alan Shearer did for the BBC yes, about yeah, injuries. Yeah, yeah. And there seemed to be some, um, obviously I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor, but there seemed to be some link between even very, very light, head traumas repetitive heading of a yeah. ball in training could yeah. have an impact later in life mm. which is it's, it's frightening really it's yeah. really worrying it is but again I think a lot more research has to be done on sure. it because heading the ball is one instance that's been highlighted is it good or is it bad but there are in life in general kids play they climb trees they yeah, go yeah. on climbing frames yeah how far are we going to take it? Yeah. But you know, um, in, in back in the 50s and when they used to head those big, heavy, yeah, yeah, rain-sodden yeah, balls, yeah, that's yeah. clearly been linked to yeah. the fact that the, the rate of dementia, for example, in yeah. the World Cup 96 squad, all that other stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. clearly a link there, isn't there? But the game has moved on a bit since then, yeah. hasn't it, to say the least? Yeah. And this is where research has to be done. Mm. Um, and again, it, it needs to be done. Um, but the problem, and again, this is a bit like research into osteoarthritis in sport, mm. The research has to be spread over a number of years because how do you gauge the reaction of a 20-year-old footballer heading footballs until they're 40 or 50? Yeah. So, so it's the waiting it, game, really. It, it, it is. And, and, the, and the research has to be done across the board over many, many years. Hmm. So it's uh, it's uh, I'm really pleased the awareness towards it is, uh, is being put out there. Um, but... In the same breath, even as a medical person, I don't want a knee-jerk reaction hmm. to what's going on. We need to take a deep breath, look at the research, think of what other research we can do, and then take the appropriate action. So your gut instinct is to say that let's just wait and see. At the moment, I don't think there's enough definitive information for us to do anything con constructive. Hmm. Um, but I think we can put things in place to help protect people I keep coming back to it, the substitution laws. Yeah. That would help protect players. It would help protect medical staff. Yeah. That's a small piece of the jigsaw. Yeah. The longer term research is um needs to be looked at. I'm gonna be a little bit pedantic and say to you, people say about heading the balls. Well, 
have we been player specific on the dementia? Have we looked at goalkeepers? Yeah. They don't head a ball at all. Yeah. But they dive and hit the floor 30 times a game. Yeah. Is that causing a problem or an impact on their head? Sure. That we don't know about? Sure, okay. So there's so many variables there that we need to look at. The good thing is we're now looking at them. And in your position um, over the years, you've been in, a, I would say it's almost a unique position to to see first hand and close up the issue of mental health in young mm. men, which is a cl- clearly a big issue. I mean, it's, you know, Men under forty-five. It's the biggest killer of them in, in this country. You deal with, you have your through your entire career dealt with young men. Is is mental health something you think needs to needs to be a lot of work done on that as well? In the same breath, I'm talking about concussion. Yeah, mental health is exactly the same discussion. In that, it's fantastic that we're now becoming much more aware of it. A conversation is um, happening in top level football about oh, this. One hundred percent, and right. men's and women's football. Okay, um, and. The, the player welfare element is um, becoming to the forefront of discussions within the sport, mm. um, in all sports, cricket, rugby, football. Mm. Um, and it really is coming to the forefront of, of the well-being of all their players. Um, and I think it can only be good for the game. I mean, I, as an ex-member of the PFA, I work closely with the PFA now on what can we do for mental health awareness. Um my angle that I'm coming from to the PFA is not only getting pathways put in place to help support players and staff yeah. to deal with these issues, mm. but more importantly, educating people that work in the football family to be aware of the issues. Mm. So if you're a masseur, massage in a player who might have suicidal thoughts, what do you do about it? Mm. Where do you take it? What is the pathway? So your emergency action plan again, basically. Again, it's it's it should be called an emergency action plan um, for mental health because it, it, you need to address it before it becomes an emergency. Yeah, sure, okay. But same sort of argument in that if players or staff are struggling, the people that notice it are the people around them. But where do they... Because it's a very personal thing. How do you go up to someone and say, you look really depressed, are you all right? Yeah, yeah. How, how do you go about that? Yeah. But... I think that's where we need to educate people to be able to deal with those um, those scenarios. And if you are worried about someone, without betraying their confidence, where would you go with it? How can you get them the support they need? Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, you, you've read it in many different places. There's nothing wrong in asking somebody, how are you? Yeah. And I don't mean, how's your injury? How's the game going? How are yeah. you playing? How are you? Yeah. And talk. And if they want to share it with you, they will open up. And there's nothing wrong with that. Do you think um, a top, in your experience, a top level football club is a environment conducive to good mental health? No, because of the pressures they're put under. Yeah, I, I think that's an easy one to answer. Mm. It's, it has to be no, because it's all about the results. It's all about the end game. So I don't think it's a good environment for mental health. But where it is a good environment is you've got the right people to to support the players. And Mm. what is pleasing for me to see is the awareness of it now is actually being discussed. Things are being put in place to move it forward. Don't get me wrong, we're in the early stages of it. There's a long way to go. But a bit like the concussion argument, Mm. it's happening and Mm. it's moving forward, which can only be good for the players, the staff, and more importantly for the game. Yeah, I completely agree. And after 32 years, is it, as a, as a top-level physio? Yeah, 86 I qualified, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're now, um, you've now opened the Lewin Clinic. 
Yes, um, yeah. Um, tell us a bit about that. Well, I left um, I left England um, in 2016, and I had one year at West Ham from 2017, 2018. And so I went into the private sector and worked at a few clinics. And my cousin, Colin, who took over from me at Arsenal when I left to go with England in 2008, um, he left Arsenal last year. So we got together and had a chat, and, and I said, how do you fancy setting something up together? So... Mm. We toyed around with the idea for a little while. This was just over a year ago. And um, we sat down with people that we trust. So we sat down with David Dean, who was at Arsenal, and Arsene Wenger, and a guy called Dick Law, who used to do all the contract negotiations at Arsenal, and said, we're physios. We know how to treat people. We've got no idea of how to set a business up. Mm. So we had some unbelievable advice from those guys. And um, one year later, we finally... Um, I've now opened up the Lewin Sports Injury Clinic. We're, we're based in Hainault in Essex. And our vision for the clinic is after, I mean, between us, we've got over 50 years experience of working in elite sport. Mm. Um, taking that out onto the shop floor, for want of a better phrase. So anyone so, can go along. So the weekend warriors, the semi-professionals, mm. the, um, the amateur, the triathletes, the marathon runners, mm. the the tennis club players, the netball club players. And what we've tried to create is a one-stop shop. So in our clinic, we have our clinical rooms. We have a, a rehabilitation gym. Um, we've created referral pathways with um, our, our colleague calls it a black book of, hmm. of people we know. So we can deal with any referrals for imaging, um, consult, consultants, um, so when you come in, you have a diagnosis and an assessment, um, and the medical pathway is worked out for you, whether it be just be treatment in the physio room, rehabilitation or referral on to get you imaged, diagnosed and treated, and mm. then come back and finish that. It's exciting because you know that when you're being treated, you've been treated with the same hands that have treated David Beckham or Dennis <laughs> yeah. Bergkamp. Yeah, they're, they're the ones that everyone keeps asking us about, <laughs> I must admit. But yeah, I mean, look, in essence, we're the same people. And and our vision was to try and bring that elite level of care yeah. to the person, I call it the shop floor. Yeah. People that do sport for fun. Um, and again, taking it to a bigger picture, we we everybody knows we have... Um, a problem of obesity in mm. society nowadays and we're trying to encourage more and more people to do sport. Yeah. The problem is when people take up sport, they sometimes get injured. Yeah, right. And so they stop. It sets them back. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, so again, we're looking to get that sort of elite cover of care to these kinds of people as well mm. that want to keep doing their sport. And and then, as I discussed with you earlier about prehabilitation, prevention, mm we can keep that going with the facilities we've got to make sure that not only they return to sport, but we try and prevent them getting injured again. Mm. Good on you. Sounds so, great. No, no, we're, we're very excited by it and we're, 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 we're having a good time. We'll watch it with interest. One question I've got to ask you before you go, you were up close and personal and firsthand with this Arsene Wenger era at Arsenal, mm. which everyone agrees revolutionised yeah. the f football, not just it in North London but the country in general you were there as a physio before Wenger came along and you stayed there all the way through pretty much yeah. how how different was that when he came in and how what was it like to work with him so closely on these issues of sports therapy sports science all that yeah. kind of stuff yeah. well was it like a revolution I wouldn't call it a revolution I'd call it an evolution Yeah, because one thing that Arsene was really good at was making people comfortable with the way he wanted to work explaining it to them making us 
not changed the way we work, um, but changed the ethos of how we work to go into his philosophy. Mm. And he was the first manager that would talk about the players being athletes, yeah. being athletic. So he put stretching regimes in, he put recovery regimes in, regi regimes in, he mm. put nutritional regimes in. And you were all for this because it meant less injuries, right? Well, that, that was the... But it was as much of an education to the medical staff as mm. it was to the players because this was, for us, was all new stuff. Would it have been the easiest thing in the world for him just to bring his own guy in? Well, that, that, that's another thing that at the time, obviously Arsene come in, we all thought, He's going to bring all his own staff in, but yeah. he bought uh, Borrow Primrak in, yeah. and he kept it all the all the original staff. And he's words mm. to us: "I know you're good at what you do. That's mm. why you're here. Mm. So all I want you to do is to to listen to how I work, to listen to what I want, and we will evolve together uh, and change the philosophy of the club, which he did to incredible effect very very quickly." Gary, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic. It's been insightful. It's been enlightening. I've enjoyed every second. Thank you very thank much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very Thanks, much. Thanks, Gary. Cheers. This was a Stakhanov production. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.